All right, so this is our final Sunday, looking at the fruit of the Spirit, singular fruit. One fruit, but so many different nuances that we've been looking at. And today we're going to look at gentleness. Uh, So I'm just going to read Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. I read a statement a while back, and the Lord began to use it to gently put his finger on a piece of my life, and as so often happens, when he works, he brings us into a space of greater freedom. And that's the journey I am on right now with this little piece of my life. I'm going to read it for you, um, and I just want you to keep the context in mind I work with grade eight students. So as I read the statement, just keep it in mind. And it was, this statement was written by an educational philosopher, as far as I know, not a believer, but the statement resonated with me. Here's how it reads. The basic gesture of teaching is that of trying to catch and direct the attention of another human being. So you're not controlling. The judgment and the burden of the judgment is on them. As a teacher, I delight in having control. Not control of what's out there, but my classroom. Don't touch my classroom. That's my space. But I began to realize that in those moments, when I find myself not being gentle, it's because I am feeling out of control. I'm afraid, or my reputation is at stake, or a situation isn't turning out the way I want it to turn out. Which brings me to gentleness. When I feel out of control, it's the opposite of gentleness. And I think we have an idea of what gentleness looks like because we've all experienced the opposite, either from somebody else directed toward us or Maybe it's me, myself, just not being gentle, being harsh or mean or grating or cutting. So how is the idea of gentleness, that part of the fruit of the Spirit, how is it woven throughout the Bible? Different words are used to convey the meaning of gentleness. There's kind of a bundle of words, meek, um, humble is another word. And then you look at various translations of the Bible, and they also word that fruit of the spirit and gentleness they word it differently and so we're going to look this morning at that bundle of words and the context of different situations where the word gentleness comes up in the bible who is involved and then finally to whom does it all lead and so our first example is psalm 1835 here's what david says to god You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me. Your gentleness made me great. David had experienced personally a counterexample of gentleness in King Saul. King Saul was just plain mean to him. And in this psalm, David is speaking, perhaps singing to God, and saying to him, God, you've delivered me. And for David, it was actually... Flesh and, flesh and blood enemies, real people God had delivered him from, including King Saul. 
And David said to God, it's not your bullyish ways that have saved my life, but God, it's your gentleness that has made me great. Then if we go on to Matthew and Jesus' words, Matthew chapter 11, here's what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What was the context here? In this context, Jesus was speaking to people who were looking inside themselves. They were looking at themselves. They were looking at a religious system to try to make themselves good. And that gets wearisome really fast. Jesus says instead, quit looking at yourself to try to get better. Quit looking at religious rules to try to get better. Come to me and I'll give you rest. It's interesting to note here that Jesus uses two words together, gentle and humble. But then there's, an all, uh, there's another word attached to gentle and humble, and that is rest. Let's move on to James 3.17, another example. Here James is telling believers, this is what wisdom looks like. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And what was the context here? There was fighting going on in the church. And if you read a couple of verses prior, they're, they're fighting, the fighting of the Christians, the believers in the church. Here's how it's described, as bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and them being arrogant. All descriptors of people that need to be in control. And in verse 13, if you look at it, James counters those descriptors with a striking and a contrasting phrase. He says, the gentleness of wisdom. Another example, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. This time the context is Paul, and he has a reason here to be defensive in this context. He's right, he had a right, humanly speaking, um, to feel like he should take control because his name and who he was was being slandered. Lies were being spoken about him. But notice in this verse whom he credits as He credits Jesus Christ as being gentle, as possessing gentleness. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So let's just recap a little bit. In Matthew, the bundle of words that's used to get, or the two words that are used together are gentle and humble. In James, uh, gentleness or being gentle is right in between the words peaceable and open to reason. So peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. In 2 Corinthians, the phrase that's used is meekness and gentleness. So with those words and those thoughts as our canvas or as our background, let's look at someone whom God said was meek 
or gentle or humble. His name is Moses, and we're going to start, we're going to kind of look at his life in chapters, um, and we're going to start with Exodus 2, verses 11 to 13. We'll call this chapter a sense of justice. Here's how uh, verses 11 to 13 read. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. We're going to start getting a picture of Moses in these different chapters that we look at. Moses was not a wimp. He had the physical strength to kill someone and then bury them. He had inner strength. Injustice made him angry, and I think rightfully so. I'm not sure that he handled it the way God wanted him to at that moment. Let's uh, move on. Exodus 2, chapters 16 and 17, or Exodus 2, verses 16 and 17. Moses realized he was not in a safe place, so he fled to Midian, a dry and desolate area in Sinai. And here's what we read. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Again, we see Moses' sense of injustice. It was keen. We are not told that he knew these ladies, these shepherdesses, but he saw something going on that was wrong. And he stood up and he said, "Huh, uh this isn't happening on my watch. I'm going to protect you guys. And he did. We don't know how many shepherds there were, but he stood up for what was right. We're going to skip a bunch of chapters, and we're going to go to Exodus chapter 23. I call, call this kind of chapter 2 of Moses' life. So God is using this man of justice to lead the Israelites out of slavery and into a land of freedom. Here is God's promise, specifically to the Israelites, for their journey. Here's what God says to them, and I'm going to start reading a few verses prior to verse 22. God says to them, I'm sending an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Their destination, the Israelites' destination, was sure. God said, I'm going to get you there. Just listen, follow me. So Moses took that word to the Israelites, chapter 24. Here's what Moses told the Israelites. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules that he had given them. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's a big promise. So with that in mind, that context... Let's see what happens next. The Lord told Moses, come up to the mountain, wait here on the mountain. I'm actually going to write my instructions on a tablet of stone and then take them down to the people. Exodus 32, verse 19. 
Moses has in his mind the fact that the people said, we're going to do everything God said. But as he's coming down the mountain, here's what he saw, here's what he heard. Chapter 32, verse 19. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Here we meet Moses again, the man of justice, and he had a right to be angry. He's not a wimp, a man of physical strength. His anger was justified. Let's move ahead. The Israelites have now been in the wilderness, in the desert, a long time. I'm going to call this chapter of Moses' life the accusation. We're in the book of Numbers now, and Moses and the people of Israel have seen God come through for them on many an occasion throughout their uh, journey from Egypt and throughout the wilderness. And on this particular occasion, the accusation isn't coming from the Israelite people. It's actually coming from Moses' own family. Miriam, the one who had actually had a part in saving Moses' life as a little baby, she's jealous of her brother. And she gets Aaron on her side, and here's what they accuse Moses of. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? You would think that with that accusation, Moses would want to defend himself. But we're not told that he tried at all to defend himself. But God defended himself, or God defended Moses. Numbers 12, verse 3, tells us what God thought of Moses. Now, the man Moses was very weak. Sorry, opposite of what I wanted to say. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Some translations use the word humble, If you look in the Amplified version of the Bible, um, and it's fun to do that because the Amplified amplifies meanings for you, and if you look at that verse in the Amplified Bible, it would read like this. Now, the man Moses was very kind, gentle, devoid of self-righteousness. Moses, on the one hand, a man of physical strength, a man of inner strength, a man of justice. Injustice made him angry. And on the other hand, a man of gentleness when he allowed God to control his emotions. Let's move on to chapter 6. And I call this chapter Taking Back Control. The wilderness days are getting long. The people forget, they complain easily. His oldest sister has died. Miriam has died. There's no water. The people are disillusioned, not because God has changed, but because they're not trusting God. They need water. Their livestock need water. They're snarling at Moses and Aaron. They're angry. And Moses and Aaron fall on their faces before God. And here's what God says. Numbers 20, verse 8. He tells Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. 
You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. Here's what Moses did. Verses 9 to 11. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as God had commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. Here's how God responded. Verse 12, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Ouch. Moses slipped, as I so often do, and he took control into his own hands. Instead of honoring God and trusting him and saying, Okay, God, you've got this. I can rest. Moses took control. Been there? Done that. I fall into similar situations. I think I need to take control. And that's when I get frustrated, I get angry, I get fearful, I lash out, and gentleness is gone. But God. John 8, verses 31 to 32, the words of Jesus. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, if you're my disciple, you're going to be in my word. And a disciple is one who sticks with whoever their master is, whoever they're following, and they listen, and they take in, and they soak up whatever their leader is saying. The only way I can live my life in gentleness, respond with gentleness, have gentleness flow out of who I am, it's actually out of who Christ is in me, is if I abide in his truth, his word, and that's what will set me free from myself. 2 Corinthians 3, we're going to look at verses 15 all the way to 18, but in little bite-sized pieces. Verses 15 and 16 say this, To this day, whenever Moses is read, so in other words, when just the law is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when, they, when one turns from trying to follow the law on our own, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. If I turn from self, myself, and I pivot, and I look somewhere else besides me, besides my circumstance, whatever it is I want to control, my fear, and I turn to face Jesus and hear his words. That's where freedom is found. Verse 17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Verse 18, We all, with unveiled 
face because now we're not looking just at the law and what we have to do, but we're looking at what, at the whole of God's word and who he is when with unveiled face we are beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When I behold him, that's when I'm transformed. I had some fun looking at those verses in several other translations, and it just kind of gives a fuller picture So if you look in the NIV, instead of saying beholding the glory of the Lord, it says when we contemplate the Lord's glory. We just soak ourselves in it and we contemplate who he is. The New Living Translation says if we're in his word, we can see who he is and then we'll reflect him. The NASB says it's like we're looking in a mirror at who God is, at his perfection, and we're transformed. Romans 10, 17 just kind of reiterates. It says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I can't grow And the fruit of the Spirit is going to stagnate if I'm not in his word. Transformation comes as I'm in the word, seeing him, hearing him, being brought into a place of freedom. In that place of freedom is where his Spirit is at work. And I learned things like this. Psalm 37.5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. In that place where his spirit is at work, he sets me free. Psalm 118, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me, he set me free. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. In this place of freedom, where his spirit is at work, he's the one whose presence flows out. I was going to bring a big old uh, glass, and I forgot. But I'm such a visual person, I need the visual aid. What we fill ourselves with is what is going to spill out of us. John 7.38 Here's what Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that's Christ. 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 and 21, talks about us being those vessels that he can fill with his presence. Paul is using it as a visual aid, and he's saying, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, 
And that can be anything. It can be that need to control, that fear that's driving us. It could be stuff we're talking about. It could be anything. Uh, but if we cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable, we'll become a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Ha! Huh. Oh, that we, his church, that I would be a vessel filled with his words, his spirit, useful to him, ready for anything he sends me to do. And the worship team can go ahead and come up now. I'll end with this verse, Ephesians 3.19. It's part of Paul's prayer, and he says, that he prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we will be filled, not with our need to control, but filled with all the fullness of God, a vessel filled with his goodness, not our own, a vessel filled with the fruit of his spirit.